in 2012, um, we bought our first house. Uh, you all know where uh, George Wilson Park is over on the south side of Mishawaka? So we bought a, a house that was in one of the subdivisions just, just north of that, like just down at the base of that hill. And uh, something struck me as odd when we were looking at the house. I'd never seen this before. Uh, we went through with our realtor, and in the basement were two entire separate sump pump units. And I thought, I'd never seen that before. Um, I didn't know why, but I can tell you I learned why the very first time it rained. Um, but the reason we had two was because every single drop of water that hit the top of the George Wilson Park Hill and came down into the river valley made a river right down through my backyard. And the bigger the rain, the closer the water got up to my house. And so every time it would rain like that and it would create that river down the backyard, I'd freak out and run down to the basement and both systems would be working overtime, you know, just like perfect. And I would... I was lost sleep over whether or not my basement would flood. I'd come back from vacation just assuming that I'd spend the next three days like gutting the basement out. Uh, but thankfully, it never happened. Unfortunately, um, after we moved, three weeks after we moved, our neighbor texted us that the person who bought our house had to gut the entire basement because it had flooded because the rain had gotten up so much that it did that. You know whose basements never flooded? The people whose houses were on top of that hill. Right? I came to find out that they built our subdivision by actually just like backfilling in a bog. And uh, so I am the living example of why you build your house on the rock and not on the sand. Uh, and I'm the dummy that bought the house that was built in a bog, um, which I've learned is not a great idea. Uh, but the, the high ground is what everybody wants, right? You want to build your house on high ground. If you know anything about military history, you know that armies want the high ground, right? And every major military victory ever was won because the army was up on top of the high ground. And if you have the low ground, you are toast, right? I realize that life is a little bit like that. Uh, not just like for armies and for houses, but if you like live on the social high ground, like you're pretty safe. But if you live in the social low ground, just like my house was pretty vulnerable to the storms of life, if you live on the social low ground, you're, you're pretty vulnerable to the storms of life. Like when it rains, it might rain on all the houses, but then it's going to wash down from the high ground and flood everybody that lives on the low ground. So we live in that kind of world, yeah? Where you have people like clamoring to get on the high ground. And I, when I was a little kid, I used to play King of the Mountain. Everybody play King of the Mountain. So like, I, f I really think that's kind of how the world works, right? Like if you're up on the high ground and somebody from the low ground is like trying to get up, you're like, Dah! back, back down. Once I'm up on the high ground, I do everything I can to protect this space. I get on the high ground because it's safe up here. It's dangerous to live in the low ground. I get up on the high ground because it is strategically advantageous. I have an advantage over anybody that's trying to get me. But here's the thing about our world. We, we live in a world like that, and because it is safer to live on the high ground, because it's strategically advantageous to live on the high ground, if anybody tries to get up to where I am, that person is the threat. 
in a high ground, low ground world, aren't we taught to be afraid of people that live on the low ground? Aren't we taught to be afraid of the very ones who are most vulnerable to the storms of life? If you think about the way that our world works, we, and I didn't do this on purpose, but, but last week's message was kind of like part one, right? Where we, there's this gravitational pull towards the high ground. The high ground is where the movers and the shakers live. The high ground is where the movers and the shakers work, where they play, and everybody wants to be there. Everybody wants to get to the high ground. And we live in a place that's like, yeah, this is where we want to go. And you know who we don't want to get here? The folks over there. Because if the movers and the shakers live in the high ground world, the low ground world is occupied by the moved and the shaken. So we live in this world where there are all of these divides and the high ground world, one of the ways that like, we reinforce that, we protect that space, is to make sure that we are afraid of or we, we look down on or we hate people that live on the low ground. The very ones who are vulnerable are the people that we're taught to fear. And so when we walk down the street, we might grab our purse or wallet when we walk by a particular kind of person. Or we might dismiss things that we see on the news as people just getting what's coming to them. A high ground world trains us to look at a, at a person, a person who's made in the image of God, and think, nah. So here's the thing to me is that that's the way the world works, high ground, low ground, never the two shall meet. That's the way the world works, but is that the way of Jesus? Is that the way of Jesus? And the reason why I say that is because we're the body of Christ in the world. And what's unique about the church is that there are very few, I would almost say the, this is the only social space where high ground folks and low ground folks can come together and be on the same plane. There's no other place in our society where those two groups can come together and be together in actual relationships. The church is a pretty unique place because Jesus assembles us. And so the reason why I want us to think about that is because we are in this space, we're in this community, there's people in this room who are relatively impervious to the storms of life. And there are people in this room who are completely vulnerable to the storms of life. But each one of us individually goes out into a world that says the people who live on the high ground, they're the movers and shakers, they're the ones everybody wants to be, everybody wants to be around them. And the people who are moved and shaken, they're the ones who are there because of their own choices, or they're the ones who are there because we should be afraid of them, or we should demean them or demonize them. We all walk out into that world every day. It's like the air we breathe. Whether or not we do that or not is irrelevant because we all breathe that air in that says people over here have value, people over here do not have value. So the question to me is, if we are going into the world as the people of Jesus, then how do we resist a world that celebrates the wealthy and the powerful and the influential and the popular and the trendsetters? And how do we resist a world that shames and excludes and pushes out the poor and the vulnerable 
and the ones most susceptible to drowning in the storms of life. How do we resist both of those things when we go out into the world? We need a way to be able to center the ways of God in a world that thinks about it all different. And that's why we come back to this in our series, Common Prayer. If, if you're just joining us this week, visiting us, um, we've been looking at the Psalms, these songs and prayers from thousands of years ago. And the reason we've been doing it is because we're committed to the idea that these songs and these prayers have meaning in our everyday life now. That they're not just old things that can be like looked at as art pieces. But that when we learn to pray, that they actually touch down in the way that we live in the world now. And that that draws us deeper into life with God. And so the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 146, if you've got a Bible or you pull the app up on your phone, is the kind of prayer that we need to be Jesus' people in a high ground world. It's the kind of prayer we need to be Jesus' people in a high ground world. I want to read it for you here. This is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. But blessed is the one whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord their God. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. God upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Do you hear high ground and low ground in this psalm? It sets up that dichotomy. It sets up the two worlds. If we look at verses 3 and 4, it says, do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. So uh, the psalmist uses this word prince. And I think that's a good word because that idea of, it's not like the artist formerly known as prince. It's the, it's the royal title. So it's a position of power and authority. But I want you to think about what princes bring with them all the time, right? The prince is the ultimate high ground person because they have more than power and authority. They have wealth. They have an entourage. Everyone who sees them knows that that is a person who is impervious to the storms of life, right? Everything about them is perfect. And if you could get close to that person, then you would be too, right? If you were like, the prince's right-hand man, no harm is going to befall you because if you can get to where the movers and shakers are, that's advantageous to you also. And you can see that the psalmist is saying that that's true, that everybody wants to be where the movers and shakers are, where, this, where these princes are, because he's saying, don't put your trust in princes. Why would he say that 
if it wasn't the impulse inside every person to find the one person that symbolizes everything about that high ground world and the, the temptation to get close and to put my trust and my hope in this person and the world that they could offer me. And the psalmist says, don't do that. Don't put your trust in that guy because guess what? He's going to die. So I want you to think about what's being said here. Because the psalmist is saying the prince has put all of his like, hope in the fact that being a prince is what will save him. Living on the high ground is safe. It affords me everything that I need. Being the prince is what's going to save him. But guess what? The very thing he thinks is going to save him comes to nothing. His plans come to nothing. He's dead in the ground. The thing he thinks saves him is not going to do it. So the psalmist brings up this high ground world and, and notes that like there's this gravitational pull to want to get to the high ground, which makes sense. But then he describes the other world too. Verses 7 through 9. Here he's describing life on the low ground. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous and watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. So on the one hand, you've got the high ground, and then on the other hand, you've got the low ground. And you, we get this list of people and groups of people that would, you know, this was written thousands of years ago, but the psalmist says, on the low ground are the oppressed and the hungry, the prisoner, uh, the blind, which would be like the sick or the disabled, the bowed down. This is the person that's been beaten up by life, right? You know what I'm talking about. Just the person who is beaten up. The foreigner. That means the foreigner, an immigrant. Um, orphans. Widows, right? Like Give 2018 is not just choosing a community partner. It is, it, it is a way for us as a community to apply this text. Um, What's interesting to me about this list written thousands of years ago is we could write that exact same list today, couldn't we? The oppressed and the hungry and the prisoner or the formerly incarcerated, uh, the, the sick and the disabled, the ones who are beaten up by life, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow. I mean, we would make that list today. Folks who are vulnerable to the storms of life, that would be the 2018 list as well. These are the types of folks that a high ground world chews up and spits out. The folks that are easy to ignore. The types of folks that all of the princes tell us to be afraid of. The ones that get demonized and pushed out and excluded. And here is the radically good news if we have the ears to hear it. Everybody is clamoring, clamoring, clamoring for the high ground to rub shoulders and hobnob with the movers and shakers. But we follow a God who lives at the low ground among the moved and the shaken. There is no other way to slice it. 
Everybody wants to be on the high ground, and God takes up residence at the low ground. You may be like, well, this is a, this is a, a, a poem, Adam. This is a song. Maybe they're just being, you know, like maybe this is like a, a, an illusion or just a metaphor of some kind. Okay, I want to jump to the New Testament. And at the very end of Jesus' ministry, he's doing a lot of teaching, a lot of talking about what the kingdom of God is like and what following him should look like. And at the very end of Matthew, he gives this picture of what it'll be like when he comes back and sets up his kingdom. And he evaluates whether or not his people have been faithful to him or not. This is in Matthew 25. I want to read this to you. He's talking about himself. When the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all of the angels with him, he will sit on his throne and all of the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd. I didn't get this right in the first service either. As a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Man. So you get this picture, right, of this king sitting on the throne and he's putting people over here and people over here, sheep and goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on the right, the sheep, he'll say, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Hang on just a second, Alex, don't go to the next one. Does anybody want to hear that? Does anybody at the end of their life want to hear Jesus say that to them? Okay. How do we hear Jesus say that to them? Alex, we'll move on. Because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and, pause, in the New Testament, the word stranger is the word for immigrant and foreigner. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. It's the same list, isn't it? Let's keep going. And all of these righteous ones will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did, when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? In other words, like, Jesus, we don't remember doing that to you. And look at what Jesus says. Well, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Did you, did you notice, Jesus is doing some interesting things here. Did you notice that he said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. I was, I was, I was. Um, Jesus is saying the same thing the psalmist is saying about God in Psalm 146. That everybody may be over there. Jesus is right over here. On the low ground with the moved and shaken. The ones who are most vulnerable to the storms of life. Jesus puts his feet in the dirt of that life. And is present with them in such a radically overwhelming way. That he doesn't see a difference between them. That Jesus is present with the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized in such an unbelievable way that he's saying, if you've done that for them, you've done that for me. To care for them is to care for me. I want you to think about that. There's another thing too right here in this verse. 
You notice what he calls them in this last verse. Brothers and sisters. These folks who live on the low ground are my brothers and sisters. You know who can't see it that way? Somebody who is obsessed with living on the high ground and protecting the high ground at all costs. Now, my goal is to protect my place on the high ground, then those people are threats or enemies or interruptions. And Jesus said, no, nah, we're family. We're family. In a world where low ground folks are excluded and demonized and set apart and walled off, Jesus says, pull up a chair, brother. Here's, here's what I want to say. Like, If you know what it's like to be overlooked, or if you know what it's like to be demonized, or if you know what it's like to be pushed out, or if you know what it's like to be beaten down, or if you know what it's like to live every moment of your day vulnerable to every storm life throws at you, guess who is standing right next to you? Guess who is with you there? Jesus sees. Jesus is present. Jesus says, pull up a chair. Let's eat together. Because you are my sister. You are my brother. When you encounter a world with all of its hate and exclusion and demonizing, come what may in the world, the king of the cosmos says, we're family. The king of the cosmos says, we are family. This is why being a part of the people of God is such a beautiful thing. Because we all, no matter where we start, high ground, low ground, whatever, we're all invited into a family that pulls us out of that space around a different kind of table where we don't foster fear and we can reject the demonization. We can stand against hate and welcome the moved and shaken and we can be the family of God the same way that God calls us into his family. We can look people in the eye and say, pull up a chair. I was reading uh, some Dorothy Day this week, and she said, we love God as much as the one we love the least. Ouch. But I'm reading Matthew 25, and I thought that could extend to say that we love God as much as the way we love the least. And for us to be able to do that in a world that's hell-bent on protecting the high ground and celebrating the people who stay there and rejecting the people who aren't there, we need a prayer, we need a way to talk to God to help us resist that. And when we pray things like, Blessed is the one whose help is the God of Jacob because God upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry and sets prisoners free and gives sight to the blind and lifts up the ones who are bowed down and watches over the immigrant and sustains the orphan and the widow. Like it pulls us this way, which is where Jesus is and that's where we want to be. So when I walk into the world, do I accept the premise that I should be afraid? Of folks over here? Do I accept the premise that folks over there are worthy of shame? 
do I accept the premise that these are folks who should be excluded and pushed out and marginalized and beaten down? Do I accept that premise or do I hear the radically good news that God is there and at work? You, you may not know this, but every year the White House has a prayer breakfast. And in 2006, they uh, gave the keynote sermon to Bono, the theologian. Actually, kind of is a theologian. Uh, here's how he ended his 2006 prayer breakfast sermon at the White House. Imagine the room that they're in and who's in it. He said, God is in the slums, in the cardboard boxes where the poor play house. God is in the silence of a mother who has infected her child with a virus that will end both their lives. God is in the cries heard under the rubble of war. God is in the debris of wasted opportunity and wasted lives. And God is with us if we are with them. When we come to the table every week, we come to the place that symbolizes what our whole life together is about. We come to this table where all are welcome. No one is excluded, where everyone gets to pull up a chair we come to this table as the family of God, remembering that Jesus, who was the ultimate mover and a shaker, gave it all up and took the form of a servant. The one who understood what it was like to be demonized and beaten up and threatened and excluded and to bear up in his own body all of the hate and fear of the world to the point of his own execution. And when all the powerful ones think they have won, he has pulled the rug out from under them, using that moment on the cross to redeem everything and to create a kingdom that's not run by the politics of the high ground, to invite everyone, everyone, to feast with him at that table. This isn't a table we get to come to because we've earned it. It's not a table we get to come to because we've made it out or climbed the ladder or found our way. It's a table that we are welcome to come to because Jesus says that it is so, so we get to pull up a chair. When the worship team comes and leads us in song, we get to come to this table because we are a people all in need of Jesus. And we get to feast on his body so that when we go out into the world as his body, that we can be in the world the way that he was in the world. On the side of those vulnerable, left out, and pushed out. Let's pray together. Blessed is the one whose help is God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God. God is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in it. God, you remain faithful forever. Jesus, we come to this table recognizing that you gave yourself up so that we could be at this table with you, that you draw us into your family, and that we get to be a part of this community that is so radically reflective of who you are that it doesn't matter where we come from, that you invite us to this new kingdom space where we can learn how to be family with you together. So we come to this table celebrating 
not that we've earned our way here, but that you gave yourself up for us. And we celebrate the story that we get to carry out into the world. We give you thanks, God.